we pray for us uh, before we get going this morning in looking at this great passage in the book of Joshua. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and kindness to us, not only in what you've done in Christ, but what you have done by sending your spirit uh, into our hearts and lives and into our midst to continue to proclaim your glories and excellencies. Thank you for your word that you have not left us to our own devices and our own minds to try to learn about you and figure out who you are, but you have revealed yourself to us and you have revealed your will for salvation and you have revealed your will for this world and for our lives and for our holiness, Father. And for that, we thank you. And we pray that, that as we consider your word this morning and as my words uh, give testimony to your faithfulness and goodness, that you would uh, write these words on our heart, that you would uh, imprint them into us so that we might be ministered to uh, by them throughout this week and perhaps even for the rest of our lives, Father. We thank you that your spirit is good and kind to do that, and we ask him to come and do that again this morning, and we pray and ask it in Jesus' name, amen. George Mueller was born in Germany in 1802. Uh, may have heard that name, you may not, but George Mueller spent most of his adult life serving God in various ministerial capacities uh, through uh, a little bit of preaching and pastoring, some missionary work, but primarily, George Mueller was involved in orphan care and in education for underprivileged and orphaned children in Bristol, England. According to sources, Mueller cared for 10,024 orphans over the course of his life, and he was particularly well-known for providing a very high-quality education to those over 10,000 orphans. So those were the ones who were immediately in his care. But beyond that, he was known to have started 117 schools, and through those schools, given education to 120,000 plus children. Many of them were orphans in other orphanages. And in 1897, when Mueller was 92, he was interviewed and asked the following question. So you have always found the Lord to be faithful to his promise? And he responded this way, always. He has never failed me. For nearly 70 years, every need in connection with this work has been supplied. The orphans from the first until now have never wanted a meal, never. Hundreds of times we have commenced the day without having a penny in hand, but our Heavenly Father has sent supplies by the moment they were actually required. There never was a time when there was no wholesome meal. During all these years, I have been enabled to trust in God, in the living God, and in Him alone. 1,400,000 pounds uh, monetary have been sent to me in, the, in answer to prayer. We have wanted as much as 50,000 pounds in one year, and it has all come by the time it has been really needed. That's amazing. Let's close in prayer. Uh, really, I mean, you know, you hear stories like this of the Lord's goodness and his faithfulness and his absolute unwavering provision for his people throughout history. And some of you have stories that would approach this in your own lives, maybe how the Lord has met you in a moment of crisis or, or dire need or how he has come 
to you and your family or you and your children or your parents or in your workplace, and he has given exactly what was needed exactly when it was needed. The Lord is indeed faithful to all of his promises. But as Blake mentioned last week, the essence of sin in the life of God's people is forgetfulness, that we just don't remember that God is actually faithful. We get going in our lives, the the pace of the world speeds up Monday morning at six or seven or five or for Harlan at two. Uh, You know, it it is never ceasing in its frenetic pace. And we forget God's faithfulness, we forget his goodness. And because of that, God asks us, just as he asked Joshua and the Israelites to bring forth these stones and to set them on the bank of the Jordan River when they came through so that they could visually look and remember that he brought them through against all odds on dry ground. And so God calls us to, to think about him, his faithfulness and to bring forth our own kind of stones of remembrance so that we can be reminded of his goodness. Well, in this passage we're about to read this morning, the question comes up once again for Israel, is God going to be with us? Is he going to show himself faithful again? Now, they had just been delivered miraculously through this river, but here they are on the verge of entering into this promised land and actually starting the conquest that God had laid out before them, and there was a huge obstacle in their way. And the obstacle was Jericho. And it was a massive, massive obstacle. And I don't know about you, but if I'm in the spot that Israel was in on this day, I'm in a vulnerable place, and here's why. Because I've just seen the Lord do something amazing. He has just been especially kind or especially good in his deliverance and his provision. And so there's that part of my heart, and I suppose yours, that that starts to hope and it starts to kind of start to believe it. Maybe he really is good, and maybe he really is going to take care of us and provide what we need. And so hope starts to build within us, and yet we see the next obstacle, and we're in that, conf- that moment of confrontation. Well, uh, it, what's he going to do now? I, I want to think that it's going to be good again, and he's going to take care of us again, but man, God, this is, a, this is quite a trial. This is a huge obstacle. Well, we see the Lord come and meet Joshua and his people again. And this is an amazing story. This is the stuff of legends. So kids, listen up. It doesn't get better than this. Read Harry Potter. Read all your your fantasy novels. This is the goods right here. So I don't know if y'all normally do this, but let's stand for the reading of God's word. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13, and we're going to go through chapter 6, verses 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does the Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. 
None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In this passage this morning, we see three things. We see many things, but I'm a pastor, so we only see three things. We see an incredible problem, an amazing provision, and a fulfilled promise. So first, the incredible problem. Uh, Sometimes we don't know about the next problem that's coming in life. That's kind of the nature of, of humanity, is we can't see the future. We don't know what's right around the corner. But that was not the case for Israel. When they came across the Jordan, in fact, before they came across the Jordan, they knew what their next problem was. It was Jericho, and it was sitting right on the opposite side. Their problem had a name. And this passage opens with Joshua, Israel's leader, at the the very base of Jericho, presumably on some kind of reconnaissance mission. How are we going to do this? How are we going to take this city? And right there, we see something about Jericho. We don't learn a ton from this passage, this passage, but what we do learn is very descriptive. Look at chapter 6, verse 1, if it's in front of you. If not, listen up. Chapter 6, 1 says that Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel, which makes sense. Maybe you are here last week, maybe you weren't, but the nation of Israel by this point was, was huge. Many people, a million plus. And so imagine this, if you were in Jericho, and we'll talk about it in a second, Jericho was sitting up, it was elevated, you would have seen with your own eyes the Jordan River dry up and part, and you would have seen a million people following this box, this Ark of the Covenant, through this dry ground. So look, when you have a million people coming straight at you, following a box on a parted river on dry ground, you are out of your mind scared. Even in big, mighty Jericho, you are scared. And so chapter 6, verse 1 tells us that the people of Jericho walled it up. They raised the gates. They, they kind of closed the ramparts. I think that's what that word means. I don't know. Uh, they did whatever they do with ramparts. Uh, the city was walled in. It was, you couldn't get in and you couldn't get out. Now, that may sound like, well, they're just going to die. They're going to be in there and they're not going to have any food. Well, if you were a big, mighty city like Jericho, you had huge storehouses. And so this was actually a pretty, a pretty advantageous position for them. And the thinking is that the people who are coming to attack us, they're the nomads. They're the ones whose supplies will only last so long. We're going to be okay. But there was Jericho. It was walled up. No one could get in or get out. The next little bit we learn about Jericho is in chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord tells Joshua that the people of Israel, after he talks about how they will indeed destroy Jericho, he says that, that you will go up. As I mentioned, Jericho was sitting on a, on a hill. 
archaeologists who have worked in ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, places tell us that Jericho, and they've actually had a seminary professor who did work in excavation on the city of Jericho, and Jericho sits on what is called a tell, a tell, and a tell was basically a, a huge hill that itself used to be a city, and when that city was conquered, the conquering army would come and you know, bulldoze it with their horses or people, I don't know. Uh, but they would bulldoze the city and they would pile up dirt over it. And so Jericho would have been built on top of that previous city, the conquered city. Now the reasons for that are obvious. That in, in that age, to have the position of height was a clear military advantage. You could see for miles and miles and miles. But beyond that, when someone came to attack you, you were shooting down at them or throwing stones down at them or whatever it is you were doing, you were doing it down at them. And if they had to get to you, they had to climb up and they had to come up the walls or up the hill and all of it. So this is a clear advantage for Jericho. And friends, this was an incredible problem for Israel. Jericho was massive. Yes, the Lord has just brought them through the Jordan River but face the mighty city of Jericho and its people in battle? An incredible problem. That seminary professor says about this verse that to describe, describing Jericho this way is to describe the seemingly hopeless situation that is confronting Israel, a people unskilled in the kind of warfare that is now required. Israel, they are mighty, yes. They are a huge number but this is an incredible problem. This would have required elite warfare to overcome the city of Jericho. And that, friends, sets us up for an amazing provision from the Lord. Let's go back to the beginning in verse 13 and kind of pick up the flow of the story. So here's Joshua at the base of this incredible walled city. And he looks up, it says, and he sees a man standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the thing we don't hear Joshua say is, I really, 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 really hope you're for us. I really hope you're on our side because if you're for our adversaries, we are done. This reconnaissance mission is going to uh, fail and I'm going to go back with the worst news ever. So who is this man? Well, this man, as we know from other places in Scripture, actually shows up several other times. In, in Genesis chapter 18, he shows up with Abraham and Sarah as they're still waiting for God to fulfill his promise to give them an offspring. It says that a man shows up, actually three men, it goes on to say, and they show up and they tell Abraham and Sarah, we are going to be with you, we are going to keep our promise to you. This man shows up later in Genesis chapter 32 when Jacob is fleeing Esau and, and he's at the river and the man shows up and he wrestles with Jacob, whatever that means, but he touches Jacob and, and renders him disabled for the rest of his life and his hip. So who is this man? Well, as it turns out, he's not a man at all. He says to Joshua, I am the commander of the army of the Lord now I have come. And at this, Joshua falls down to worship him. Joshua understands that this isn't just a man. 
he is most likely, as scholars say, he is most likely encountering a pre-incarnate vision person of the Son of God, Jesus himself. That's a big fancy word, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is showing up and saying to Joshua, I'm here, it will be okay. Notice how he answers Joshua's question though. Joshua says, well, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? No. Mic drop, no. And I think that is very instructive for us this morning in how we think about God. Everybody wants God on their side. Everybody wants to believe that God is with them and he's kind of tailor-making himself to our lives and to what we want to happen. It's like when theologians uh, try to argue uh, back and forth. Everyone wants St. Augustine on their team. It's the trump card. You get him and you probably have said something right. Or when you're trying to talk about culture and, and what's going on around us, you reference David Brooks. If you can get David Brooks on your side, man, what a, what a monster in that world. You, you're probably right. Or in history, maybe it's Ken Burns or David McCullough. We want the experts on our team, on our side. But this commander of the Lord's army simply says to Joshua, no. And so that's generally applicable to our life, right? But I think that's especially applicable in an election season. Here we go. Various Christian voices try to chime in and, and, and write their pieces or, or lay out their arguments for how God is definitely for this candidate or that candidate, or for this party or that party, or this movement or that movement. And God steps into that abyss oftentimes, and whether or not we ever hear it, God is in the middle of that saying, no. No, I'm not gonna be co-opted into our agendas and our plans and our political parties and our movements that way. That's just not who I am. But friends, let me tell you this. If you absolutely, if you absolutely want to be certain that God is on your team and you are on his, then you must find yourself on his team. God is not going to take our invitation as uh, some sort of um, person who's gonna be manipulated and moved and co-opted. If you wanna be on God's team, you move to find yourself on his team. I won't fit nicely into your plans, it's as if God is saying, but if you follow me, I will use you in mine. So to Joshua, he says no. And that is a core principle for us to understand God's work in the world. The Bible itself throughout is not me or us-centric. It is not me-centric. It is not you-centric. It is not us-centric. It is not centered around us in our storylines. Does God think we matter? Absolutely. We are the apple of his eye, the pinnacle of his creation. He loves us so much that he sent his only son to redeem us. But is the story of the Bible about us? It's not. It is about God. It is about what God is doing to redeem and restore the world. 
It is about God fulfilling his promises to his people over the course of time. The Bible is a story about God. So having gotten this message, Joshua asks in verse 14, well, so what does the Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Right there in the midst of this incredible problem, Joshua meets up with the same God who met a very fearful man named Moses many years before, and he reassured them in the exact same way. He says, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. Notice how for Joshua and for Moses alike, in in those moments of great trial and of, of fear, no doubt, God meets them and gives them courage not in who they are. God does not show up and say, hey, Joshua, you're amazing. You're so great. You can do this. This is not a pep talk for Joshua. This is not sort of like private therapy session where he's like girding up Joshua for the battle that's in front of him at all. He is not telling Joshua how wonderful he is, which is kind of how our world tends to do encouragement. That's kind of how we tend to prop up ourselves, but that is not what God does. He rather reminds Joshua who he is. He says, I am holy. And you would do well right now to know that. Uh, Another writer says, sometimes we need to see that the Lord is not so much partisan as sovereign. Joshua says, are you with us or against us? He's not so much partisan as sovereign that it is more important to recognize God's position than to know God's plans. We can easily become more interested in special guidance than in a right relationship with the guide. God, will you help me in this moment right now? Will you do exactly what I want you to do for me? God, will you give me clear vision right now? Will you tell me if I should make this decision or that decision? God, should we buy this house or not? And God says, I'm holy and I want you to know me and I'm gonna take care of you, and I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna make promises, and I'm gonna be faithful to that. But he doesn't always give us this moment-by-moment plan for our lives. I often find myself wanting answers and guidance more than I want the teacher and the guide. How about you? I wanna know the way forward more than I want to seek the one who knows all and who sees history in an instantaneous moment. So Joshua meets here with the God of his forefathers here at Jericho, and God shows Joshua that he will indeed fulfill his promise to his forefathers and to all of Israel right there at Jericho. And so we see his promise fulfilled right in their midst. Look at verse 2 in chapter 6. Joshua says, I'm sorry, the Lord, the angel of the Lord says, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. And he goes on to describe what that victory would look like. You know, we, we teach our children this great song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle, except he didn't <laughs> at all. He didn't. He didn't fight at all. The Lord said, you will go, and you will get your leaders and your, and your priests and the trumpeteers and the ram's hornsmen, and you will march around this city, and I will destroy it, and you will go up, and you will take it. And that's it. 
Joshua, you are not mighty, but I am. Look, how great would that, that promise have God been to them in that moment? Look at the promise. I have given them into your hands. When God says this, he is speaking in completed action. This is the strongest form of a promise that God gives in Scripture. He doesn't say, I will do this, which is great, and which means he's going to do it. But when he says, I have given them, he is looking down the corridor of time and saying, this is a done deal. And you would do well to rest in that. Jericho is going to fall, Joshua. I have already given it into your hand. It's a done deal. Wrap it up. Send it out the door. Let's go on our way. Joshua's standing there with this laughable battle strategy, though. I think about um, tattoos when I think about this passage, obviously. And uh, I love tattoos. I think it's great they've made a resurgence. Sorry if uh, you have a problem with that. Um, but I love the creativity and the artistry behind them. Now, to be certain, there are bad tattoos. <laughs> really, really bad. Some of them are scary. Some of them are not done well. Some of them are 40 years later. Uh, but tattoos usually are some sort of uh, remembrance. This is something to my mother, or to my father, or to a children, or this is a scary monster, or something. I was talking with a college student the other day. College students love tattoos. And this girl was telling me about how she, she got the word faith written right here on her wrist, which is neat. And what was really neat is that as she told me why she had that uh, uh, put there, she talked about the Lord's goodness to her and her family. And she talked about how they were really put in a position where they had to trust him. They were kind of at the end of the rope. And they leaned into him, and the Lord provided, and he was good. And as she told this story, my heart was warmed, her heart was warmed, she was brought to tears, as was I. Joshua, I imagine if he's going to get a tattoo right now, he's going to have it right here saying, I have given them into your hand. So that as he's turning around to Israel and telling them this laughable battle strategy, that he's kind of looking down and he's like, all right, God. Yes, you said, okay, God has given them into our hand. We can do this. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go march, and we're going to blow the trumpets, and Jericho is going to come down. I have given Jericho into your hand, God says. But look, friends, this fulfilled promise to Joshua isn't just to Joshua, and it's not just to this present people who is sitting there wanting to take the land God is actually fulfilling a promise that he made long before. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 22. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. God spoke a fulfilled promise to Joshua on that day. What do you do with the fulfilled promises that God has spoken to you in his word? Do you know that God has spoken fulfilled promises to you in his word? He has spoken of certain things which are yet to come. 
for us. Look, Jericho was a real enemy and an incredible problem for Israel. And yet, both they and we have real enemies and greater problems than Jericho. We have sin and Satan, the mastermind who himself loves to discourage us and who, have wanted, who would have wanted Joshua to not get that tattoo, who would want Joshua to forget that the Lord is going to deliver them. Don't you know, friends, that in Christ we have received a greater promise than Joshua did there at Jericho? We have received a forever promise. It speaks not just to the end of the battle, but to the end of the war. Israel would go on to have many more enemies, and they would go on to fight many more battles, some of which they would win and some of which they would lose. And that's actually what our lives look like. What I'm standing here today telling you is not that if you trust Jesus and if you believe in him enough, then you will never have more battles and more enemies. That would be a lie. You will. But God is telling them and he's telling us, and we have this more sure promise that the commander of the Lord's army showed up on another battlefield. And he showed up on that battlefield alone. On the cross, Jesus went and he fought the battle alone. And he died alone. And he went to the tomb and three days later, he rose alone and then went and showed himself to his disciples and said, you are not alone. I am for you. I have just defeated your greatest and the world's greatest enemies of sin and Satan. Friends, you are not alone ever again. Jesus makes this promise to us. I'm for you, I'm with you. Listen to how the Apostle Paul reflects on this in Romans 8. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen to verses 29 and 30 that I'm about to read and listen to the tense the verb tense that all of these promises are in. Listen to this. For those whom he foreknew, past tense, he also predestined, past tense, to be conformed, past tense, to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, Paul is reflecting on the massive import of the gospel for us. And he's saying, look, God's plan is sure. From beginning to end, before the foundation of the world, God looked down and he foreknew and he predestined and he called and he justified. And Paul also goes on to say that those whom he justifies, those whom he saves and calls to be his, he will glorify. What he is promising you in the gospel is that one day, someday, the victory of the war is certain. And if you are in him, you win. Glorification is the end. It is the celebration. It is the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is the party that God has invited his people to. And he's saying, if you are in Christ, if you will but believe what I've done for you at the cross, you are invited, but more than invited. You have a seat at the table. Friends, Joshua faced an an amazing problem. He saw an amazing provision. And he got to experience a fulfilled promise. 
how much greater we who have witnessed Christ as he comes to us in the scripture, how much greater is the promise that we now can hold on to and take with us into every battle, into every circumstance and trial that life brings us. Glory to God for Christ who has come for his people to deliver us once and forevermore. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that in Christ your promises, all of them are yes and amen. And that we aren't waiting for some big thing to happen. The big thing has happened, Father. And now we are waiting for the consummation of glory. Lord, give us faith. Strengthen our hearts for the battle. And ready us for the end of the war, Father. Even as we come now and as we take of this supper, prepare our hearts for the great supper of the Lamb when we will sit with you and feast and dine and recount your glory and your goodness forever. We pray and ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.